If you wanted to go into art collecting today, Robert, it's really hard to know where to start. It's hard to know what you should buy and what you should like and why and what are the value signals and what's in the secondary market and what isn't and which gal you know, how do you get access to the gallery? And all of that is really overwhelming. And we looked at Artsy had a great head start in this space, but looking at what could be built over the next four or five years, the team and I saw this incredible opportunity to create, to, to put up an art advisor in the pocket of everyone who enjoys art, to give people software and a platform and a marketplace that would give them personal access. That's how success happens. From Entrepreneur Magazine, my name is Robert Tuckman. I self-funded, built up, and eventually sold two businesses to major players in the sports and entertainment industry. And I am fascinated by other entrepreneurial minds and what drives high-achieving people. So on this podcast, we're going to learn what they've learned and what it takes to really succeed. Mike, thanks for joining us on How Success Happens. So great to have you. I, I really I love your background and so many interesting journeys it seems like you have taken. Where'd you actually grow up? Uh, you know, when I was little, we moved around a lot, but then settled into a small town in New Jersey called South Brunswick when I was like 10 or 11. We were there through high school and then I uh, and then off to college where I met my wife and got a, got on the right foot and came to New York after. And here we are. That's funny. So, yeah, I guess uh, college was good for you. Not only did I hope you got a degree, but you uh, also met the wife, right? It was the best thing that could have ever happened to someone in college. <laughs> yes. So tell me, so coming out of college, I mean, was there a passion? Was there an interest? Was there something you really wanted to do in career-wise? Yeah, I was wrong, but yes. <laughs> I, I had not had a ton of exposure to professional business in the way that you and I are accustomed to it when I was growing up. My dad worked in hospitality. My mom worked in customer service. I don't. No one in my family had graduated from college or gotten an MBA. So Coming out of school, I had this. I thought first I should be a lawyer because you know when I was growing up, the two most successful people you ever met were like a lawyer or a doctor, and doctor wasn't for me. So that was where that was where my head was at when I started. Life is serendipity. I applied to take the LSAT, and the application didn't come back in time. So by the time I had skipped it, I had an offer to be a consultant and an offer to be an investment banker, and so I figured I'd spend a few years becoming conversant and sort of what goes on in the business world. Turned out I liked it a lot. And over the course of my career, I found a, a niche that for me is the right fit. I, I really enjoy leading consumer businesses, putting together great teams and trying to build products that that people love and that you know you can turn into a, into a pretty good business. Was there that first time or first experience you recall where you were like, you know what, this is really what I love to do? I had a, my first few jobs were non-operator jobs. These were, I was a consultant in a dark period of my life. I was, uh, I worked in corporate development and did M&A. And all of these are places that smart people are drawn to because they have the attention of senior people and prestigious companies, but you're not, you don't, you're not getting your hands dirty in the way that one does as an operator. And it's not to say one's better than the other, but for me, there was a moment when I wrote a business plan for when I was in a corporate development group for a, an idea for a new channel and it got green lighted and I was allowed to start putting it together. And I was, I was doing things outside of a PowerPoint and I loved it. I loved hiring the team. I loved finding the facility. I love like doing the budget and making sure we'd have enough money to get it through the first year. And 
it gave me endorphins and I had a, and I had developed then a good sense that I enjoyed, I enjoyed leadership and I enjoyed building something or fixing something. And, and especially one that is a consumer facing business that other people will enjoy. And then say to me when I see them out, like, Hey, I, I watched your channel or I use your product or, Hey, I downloaded your app and I like it. Yeah. It's a good feeling, right? Oh, it's the best. It's the best. <laughs> so let me ask you, you know, you talk about that and having that excitement and really putting, getting your hands dirty, building, were there things you saw as, as, as things like maybe challenges that maybe you were thinking, uh, maybe I shouldn't be doing this or was it all just, this is what I want to do? When I started building businesses, well, it really exposes your unlimited number of weaknesses you have as someone who hasn't done these things before. Uh, leadership is really hard. General management is really hard. Product development is really hard. And so as soon as you start doing it, you find yourself being overwhelmed by the list of things that this job requires that you're not very good at. It, through some combination of written toil and reading the right books and calling smart people for advice, I worked my way through it. And then once you've done it once or twice, there's a set of things that now are a set of skills that you can bring to the job. And it leaves more room for you to be creative and solve problems at a higher level because I'm not reinventing the wheel with how to do a sales compensation plan. I figured that part out and now I can go figure out something more more exciting. Let's talk about Artsy. And you've had, as I mentioned, some really big roles, big jobs, CEO level. What was it about Artsy that was of interest to you in, in coming on board as CEO? So by way of background, earlier in my career, I had a bunch of these starter jobs I referenced, uh, management consulting and corporate development I worked at. And then I moved to Google at a really exciting time. Google was, was a public company, but still in a rapid growth phase when I got there. And I was able to take you know, some of these generalist experiences that I had and start to apply them uh, as a business leader in a really fast-growing company that was changing the way people thought about how you build how you build great products. And what I so what I knew I wanted to do after Google was was go do that without a net. Go try to build a great product in a space where the product didn't exist and really solve problems for people and try to wrap a good business around it. So before Artsy, I went to a company called XO Group. XO Group was the parent company of The Knot and The Knot at the time was an online magazine for people getting married. And if you went back 20 years ago and you were planning a wedding, you went and bought a magazine like Martha Stewart Weddings. And then these clever entrepreneurs during the first dot-com frenzy put that content on the internet and took the company public. Over the 15 years between when that happened, when I joined the company, the business stalled. Three of the four revenue streams were in decline. And it was a business that had hit that, that typical wall where the business model that made sense a decade ago didn't make sense now, and um, and it sort of needed a fresh a fresh direction. There, a new team and I came in, and we had this idea that you could take all the traffic that was going to the site and divert it to something that uniquely solved the problem of somebody planning a wedding. And that problem in our mind was: if you're planning a wedding, Robert, have you done this? Like, it's super hard. And <laughs> I tried. You're being asked to be a professional event planner, even though you're not, and book like 20 vendors who you've never met. I don't know. You, do you know any wedding DJs and wedding photographers? Of course, nobody does. And so we built software that would do that for you and connected you to a marketplace of vendors who wanted to serve your wedding and essentially helped give you end to end everything you need to plan the wedding. And the result is 
we five x the value of the company. We had eighty percent share of market among engaged couples. The app was a four point nine rated app. We had an NPS of seventy. It was so fun because in this space where some a product like that didn't exist, we worked really hard and made it exist, and people loved it. And it literally made this year of their lives that was so challenging successful. And it, it felt great to do that. We had a ton of endorsements from it. So we sold, we ended up selling the company at a really good result for our investors. And I was looking for something else like that, a space where maybe there were solutions, but we had the, the, the problem hadn't been solved. And some combination of technology and hustle and the right people could give people a, a, a product that they could really enjoy and could solve a lot of their problems. And that brought me... It's a long way to answer your question, Robert, to Artsy. I hadn't been in the art world before. I hadn't bought paintings before. I knew that I appreciated art, but I didn't appreciate the art world, the business of art, and certainly had not transacted there before. And as I looked at the space, art in a lot of ways rhymed with this thing that we did at The Knot. It rhymed with with what we did at The Knot because if you wanted to go into art collecting today, Robert, it's really hard to know where to start. It's hard to know what you should buy and what you should like and why and what are the value signals and what's in the secondary market and what isn't and which gal- you know how do you get access to the gallery and what- all of that is really overwhelming. And we looked at Artsy had a great head start in this space, but looking at what could be built over the next four or five years, the team and I saw this incredible opportunity to create to, to put up an art advisor in in the pocket of everyone who enjoys art to give people software and a platform and a marketplace that would give them personal access to the entire art world. And that was, it was an exciting thesis. We jumped in, you know, my last day at, I was going to take some time off. The, 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 the not job was, it was a really hard job. And my last day there was June 30th. And my first day was July 1st at Artsy. It was such an exciting space and opportunity. We could not wait to get into it. Tell us about artsy and just give us a little bit of background, just exactly what you do. I know most of our listeners know, but there's some that might not. So art is sold through art galleries in the primary market. So when an artist paints a painting, they hope to get a gallery to represent them, to sell their art to collectors. And then a subset of those artists grow in popularity and develop a secondary market. And those paintings are sold through auction houses. And in the traditional art world, if you wanted to buy art in the primary market, you go art gallery to art gallery, or you go art fair to art fair, looking for art that you'll enjoy. And you will you can have the visual experience of buying art, but there's a whole bunch of stuff behind the art that you may not know about, the provenance of the art, the value signals of this art. What is it that's, that's suggesting this is an artist who's going to shape our culture versus another artist who may not? And in the secondary market, this... 300 year old business model. They take a painting and they hang it up in the room and they say, this painting is for sale and they bang a gavel and everyone bids on it. And the house takes 40 or 45% commissions. That's the sort of, that was the traditional art world. Artsy is trying to make that traditional art world more uh, accessible and more open and lower friction. And the way that we're doing that is we've gotten thousands of art galleries from over 100 countries around the world together to put their art in our marketplace. We work with dozens of auction houses who run their auctions online with us in the same way. So that if you, Robert, were in the market for one particular artist, you can find that artist on Artsy, no matter what gallery 
or art fair or auction house that art happens to be for sale at. If you don't know what artists you like and you use the app a little bit, we'll start to figure it out and we can start to direct you to artists, art galleries, or lots for sale at auction that are a match for your passions. And then we've added a layer of transactability across all of it so that not only can you find the art that you'll love, you'll click a button and a week later it'll be hanging on a wall in your apartment. And we made that, we made that all happen. More from our guest, but first a word from our sponsors. Being a small business owner can be so fulfilling, rewarding, and let's be honest, a little scary from time to time. Doing your own thing and being your own boss is great, but sometimes it can make you feel like you're all alone, especially when things aren't going great. Well, the folks at State Farm want you to know you're not alone. State Farm has thousands of agents who are small business owners too, so they know what it takes to protect everything you've worked so hard for. State Farm has an assortment of insurance policies for small businesses that can be tailored to your needs. So whether you're a hairstylist, an electrician, or a florist, State Farm agents are ready to help. Learn more and find an agent today at statefarm.com slash smallbusiness. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. This episode of How Success Happens is being presented by State Farm. And our next sponsor. All founders know the importance of compliance when scaling a business. After founding three different businesses, I have to admit compliance is still a complex issue that takes way more time than I'd like. However, I found a solution to the dilemma of the complex compliance process, Leica. Leica makes the compliance process simple. Their platform combines automation with built-in expertise to help companies get certified, close deals, and approach compliance the right way. And Leica goes beyond integrations. Their platform connects you to your everyday applications and applies actual human expertise to a robust software that powers your compliance. Leica even connects to your applications and instantly creates tailored policies based on your business. And it's the only compliance platform that offers a true integrated audit solution. So no more messy spreadsheets and miscellaneous audit documents. Their team of experts manage your audit from beginning to end with full progress tracking through the app. So how success happens, listeners, you can get 20% off when you join. Visit heylica.com slash HSH to get this exclusive deal. That's H-E-Y-L-A-I-K-A dot com slash H-S-H, all lowercase, to request a demo and get 20% off when you sign up for Leica. And we're back. What changed for Artsy when the pandemic started? Getting art galleries to embrace the internet to embrace price transparency, which is something that had been a challenge in the art world for a long time, actually. It was hard to know how much something cost, which consumers outside of the art world have a hard time believing because you're, you're used to someone telling you the price of what you want to buy. But and, and transactability on the internet were all pretty foreign to the art market. And when COVID hit, it was estimated, there were estimates that up to 70% of galleries could go out of business losing a year or two years 
of foot traffic. Our, I mean, remember the, the governments in almost every country said, close your door. You're not allowed to do business. And business had been done in person in the art world for a long time. And we were, we were there for our gallery partners and many new galleries who joined and everyone who had been reluctant to try the internet now had a reason to try the internet. Everyone who had been trying the internet, but who had been reluctant to reveal price or enable transactability now leaned into that as well, because this was the only channel through which you could reach collectors and stay in business. And as we come out the other side, virtually no art galleries went out of business. Over the two-year stack, the art market will be up versus where we were when COVID started. And the genie doesn't go back in the bottle for an industry that has found that you can reach a broader audience and better serve your artists by embracing the internet and embracing transparency and transactability. And so what we're seeing today is the industry is in a just completely different place than where it was a few years ago. The pandemic helped to accelerate for the art world, the embrace of the internet and reaching the broader audience that 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 makes possible. That's really interesting because you say you can't really put the genie back in the bottle. And there was a way the art world was doing things for hundreds of years. What does it look like coming out of this pandemic, you know, a couple of years down the road? Because I would imagine people get used to doing, you know, something the same way. And then all of a sudden, quickly, you know, it accelerates, it changes. What's that going to look like for that business? I would say, Robert, first, there's a big problem with the art market, which is that it's not big enough. If you think about, you know, there's 17 million high net worth individuals around the world who those aren't the only people who should be able to buy art. But they're the ones who, without debate, could afford it. They buy boats and cars and expensive handbags and jewelry and fancy watches and so on. And 99% of them did not buy art in the last year. 99% of them don't buy art in any trailing 12 months. There's nothing special about the last 12 months. And when you, and I've talked to hundreds of these people, when you ask them why, it boils down to, well, when I buy a car, I know what I'm doing. Like I can look at the blue book value. I see the car commercials. All my friends have this car. It's not hard to buy a car. When I walk into the art world, I don't know what I'm doing. And you know, the thing about art is you're buying a unique object. And you're buying a unique object that is a signal to others about your taste and how you want to participate in our culture at this moment and support our culture and support the arts. And Robert, there's some pieces that if you buy it, someone else who knows what they're doing will see it and say, wow, Robert's got good taste. Robert really knows the art world. And there's some pieces where someone's going to look and say, man, Robert's a schmuck. And <laughs> Probably the latter. <laughs> but listen, but you know that that's a risk sitting outside the art world. I knew it was a risk sitting outside the art world. And if there's one thing that successful people, people who have the means to buy art or cars or boats or whatever it is, if there's one thing we're avoiding at all costs, it's the risk of looking like a schmuck. And that being fixed, that is what art is fixing, that you can see all the art in one place, be connected to the art that you'll like visually, that you can know the value signals. Artsy now has the largest free database of secondary market transaction information. If, Robert, if you were thinking about buying Eddie Martinez, you should download our app and flip through. You will see every Eddie Martinez trade, including the record that was set last week. And now you know what you're doing and you could buy a piece with confidence. And as that starts to happen, thing that will be different about the art world is it will be much, much bigger. Today, the art world is a $50 billion market. Watches and jewelry are an almost trillion dollar 
market. More people like art, more people appreciate art, more people love art than people who love watches and jewelry. And the world that we're going to live in is one where the art market is a trillion dollar market. And more galleries have successful businesses, more artists can put food on the table, and more people bring the warmth and joy and culture of art into their homes and into their lives. You know, you talk about so many, there's so much opportunity, such a small percent of some of the the wealthiest people in the world are buying art. Is Artsy's plan, is your plan to really capture that market? Is there a market beyond that market that's another level down and a third level down? Or are you really focused on top tier? Forgive me, I only reference the top tier because it's hard to argue with it. If I told you art should be, owning art should be as popular as streaming music in the world, which it should be, you would quibble with, well, can everyone afford art? Will everyone prioritize art? And so I just wanted to put that aside to start with 0.1% of high net worth individuals buy art. If 1% of high net worth individuals buy art, we have 10x the art market, right? I said, let's start there. But art should be in everyone's life. If you think about, I mean, when we're five years old, we're taught in kindergarten, not only that we should like art, but that we are artists. And it's hung on the wall and it's hung on the fridge and we feel connected to it and proud. If you're getting back on an airplane this fall and going somewhere you haven't been in a long time, you're going to go to the art museum. More people around the world go to museums than go to sporting events. I mean, think about that. And yet we act like every other luxury category is something that we should aspire to or should be in our life. And we don't all think that way about buying art. And so it's not about only a certain tier of people having art. It's about expanding the art market to everyone and ensuring that so many more artists can work. Think about this, Robert, you you have daughters, if they were to come to you after college and say, you know, I'm thinking about being a lawyer, I'm thinking about being an investment banker, I'm thinking about being a product marketer at Google, you'd say, "That's that's so great. And if they said, Dad, I'm going to be an artist, you'd say, oh, shit. And we should not work in a world where, like, we shouldn't live in a world where we're proud of our kids for being, you know, a level four product marketer at some tech company and be sad that they want to be an artist. We live in that world today because the art market is too small and it doesn't feed enough artists. We get this right. Art isn't just a passion. It can also be, it can also support people. It can be their livelihood. And I, you know, I hate to think over the last hundred years, how many great artists couldn't be artists because they, because they just couldn't put food on the table. That's a great point. And that's exactly what I was thinking when you were saying this, just in terms of, I would love it, right? I think we'd all love it if our daughters or sons had a passion to be an artist and there was a way you knew they could take care of themselves and put food on the table. And I think that that would be the ultimate. And, you know, in terms of artsy and how you can really change that, what is it that you have to do right over the next couple years to make that a reality? Data is a big, big part of it. Uh, and it's been, and it's been a big focus for, uh, for us. Um, someone inside the art world could look at two paintings that are each for sale for X dollars. Let's say it's the same number of dollars. and know that one of them has the right momentum the right gallery representation has had the right number of solo shows and has been shown at the, you know, been bought by the right museum. And there are all these signals that tell you this is an artist that's really on her way or knows, Hey, that artist has secondary market traction and the market is moving in this direction. And just knows that painting on the right is one that could be worth a lot of money. And that painting on the left is pretty, but it won't. And I don't believe people should buy art because it's going to be worth money, but we all know that in the back of our mind, 
that this could be, it could be a decorative purchase, but it could be an investment. And because it could be an investment, we all feel insecure about doing it and having it be a, be a bad one. So we're really focused on productizing those signals and making them available to everyone, not only the insiders in the art world. So if you download the Artsy app today, you can look and see not only all of the secondary market transactions that tell you the price trajectory of these artworks once people own them and sell them to someone else, but also the earlier career value signals as well. Who's the gallery? What shows have they had? All the items that I mentioned before, we're now providing that information to collectors or people who wish to be collectors who didn't necessarily have access to that that information before. And that just allows you to make make a decision to welcome a work of art into your life, much higher confidence. And if we take we take the doubt, we remove the doubt, we remove those, then we remove those barriers to coming into the art market. And that is what's going to significantly expand this art world. What are the major challenges or what are the things, or is there a thing that keeps you up at night with the business? Everything. And it's it's just a different thing each week. You'll, you know, one week. You'll feel like we just had two huge product launches. We're moving with great velocity into product earnings. I'm looking at all the product metrics are up and to the right. And you're feeling great. And then you come in the next week, you go, oh, the sales number's down. I was, I was looking at product and I wasn't looking at sales. And then you dig into the sales numbers, you figure out, oh, we got the talent. We got the right pitch. You make one or two changes and then the sales numbers are flying. And you look, you go, oh, the number of leads we were expecting to come in didn't come in. I mean, leadership is to a large degree dealing with whatever one thing is, you know, two things are working and one isn't, and it's, it's tackling the one it isn't. The other things though, that's, I don't know, that's, that's a throwaway comment. And I think anybody who's run a business would, would tell you that. I think particular to the moment we are in now, getting this hybrid work or this, this digital by default work environment, right, I think is existential for my company and, 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 and probably most others. The employees at Artsy did their best work from home. And if you had told me that three years ago, I just would, I would have never believed it. And now we've done our best work from home, but we've also heard from folks. I miss my teammates. I'm not getting the collaboration or the camaraderie that I might, I might've enjoyed before. Newer employees maybe have a harder time uh, making emotional connections. So there's a sense that like we want to get back. But when you ask people, do you want to go back to the office full time? Everybody goes, no way. You say, do you want to go back to the office? No time. They go, no way. Say, when do you want to go in? So I want to go in when everybody else goes in. So what we're trying to figure out now is how you create an environment where you give the team that flexibility that they've really earned. Come in if you want, don't come in if you don't want. You create this gravitational pull so that everyone who may want to come in, you know, there's nothing more deflating than to spend 35 minutes on the six train and find out you're the, you pick the day at the office where, you, where all your buddies don't come in, right? <laughs> so how do you create that gravitational pull to get people into the office together by way of example, you know, our marketing team has an event this week. We've got artists coming in to speak to them. We're doing a gallery tour. That gets everybody who's thinking I want to come in to you know, come in and do it, do it in person. So getting all of that just right. But then how do you manage the floor plate and how do you manage whether you have a permanent desk or you don't? And all of that is new. And what I've communicated to the team is every person at Artsy is going to help us to get this right. I've asked the team to remember, like, you're not eating in the restaurant at Artsy, you're cooking in the kitchen. We all have to figure out together what gets this recipe right for digital by default hybrid work. And we're taking notes and we're taking feedback and folks are giving us new cool ideas and we're iterating on it. But this one, it is, you know, most recently, it's, it's very much on my mind. 
Yeah, I think you and a lot of CEOs and founders, I asked this question to many of them. And I really, everyone is kind of in, in the same boat thinking like, you know what, they're not like, this is how it's going to be. This is what's going to happen. You know, it's really about trying to figure this out. And for me as a, a business owner too, with a new business that launched during the pandemic, we don't even have a physical office space. It's just very confusing. And I'm so curious how this plays out. And like you said, it seems like you we're getting people to be really productive. And now it's just figuring out how to continue that and make it work 360. I think we will get it right. And I think the result, not only for my company, but I just think for society, it's going to be really good. I think it's going to be easier for parents to be good parents and come back to work when they've uh, once they become parents. I think it's going to globalize our workforces more. I think it's, it's we've already seen it. It's helped us. It's supported us as we've tried to diversify our organization more. And when you say, hey, I have to have a you know, full stack developer in New York who has experience with uh, this coding language, you've got a very, you know, trying to fit talent through a very narrow aperture. When you say, I need that kind of a developer anywhere in the world, it's different. You've got, a, you can cast a much wider net and you can get a much more diverse and higher quality as a result workforce. So, but then you've got to get all this other, you got to get all these other tricks right. And that's, that's what we're thinking about. Yeah. That's the thing. It's going to be interesting to see just from a culture perspective and, but you're absolutely right. I hadn't heard you're right. It's going to globalize the workforce for sure, which is such a, a great thing and diversify it a lot more. We've been able to hire talent that, you know, we just couldn't hire being in New York prior and giving people opportunities. So it is amazing. I want to, in the time we have left, I, I want to ask if you had some advice for a younger version of you, right? Coming out of uh, university right now, is there something you would tell that person just in terms of how to approach business and work and moving forward? Sure, Robert. The first thing is the I find that the transition from school to business is difficult for a lot of people because school teaches them that there is an assignment that'll be given to you very predictably. And if you complete the assignment, by the time it's due, you get an A, you're the best. And the way business works is you have to figure out what the right assignment is and you have to get it done as fast and as well as possible and move on to the next assignment, which you don't know what that right assignment is yet either. The approaching work, you know, rather than looking for what's the thing I need to turn in to get an A plus and instead say, what makes this business move forward? What's needed of me? It's a very difficult transition. And the better school someone went to, the harder the transition is. Because nothing is more rewarding than to be told you're the smartest kid in the world and you go to Harvard. And then you get now you get dumped into a sales team somewhere and you find out that if you don't bring in the business this quarter, nobody cares where you went to school, you suck. And it's, it's a really tough transition. So that's the first one, which is just changing the mindset from an assignment-based kind of people-pleaser academic approach to being a hunter and going into whatever role you're going into, asking not what might get assigned to me, but what makes this organization, what makes this team successful and how can I best contribute to it? And then the second, just as folks are looking at their career paths, and I think this will rhyme with the first one, you have to be the CEO of your own career. You have to think about where you want your career to take you. And as a result, what experiences and learnings and connections in your network and so on, you're going to need to get there. 
And there are a lot of folks, they tend to be the folks who love the assignment-based approach to life. Well, sit in a job for two or three years, and then they'll be offered one that comes with more variety or X percent more pay, and they'll make that move. But it's not as part of a plan. It's a wandering from one sort of variety, one source of variety to another. And for, your, for the first 10 years of your career, you actually get, you get rewarded. You, you move up a title and compensation ladder that is, uh, it's a bit misleading because the real big payoffs in a career come at a place where that above where that ladder sits. If you are like nitpicking between the difference between a, 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 an associate VP and a VP and a senior VP, you fell for a trick in your career. You're focused on the wrong stuff. You're not actually building out a skill set and a set of experiences that are going to propel you into a place of leadership or ownership where you can really do some big things. I have a plan and be on the hunt. Now, what you just said, such, such great advice in terms of really looking big picture and so many people, so many younger people I speak with, the older people too, it's about title and, and not big picture. So I want to thank you for that. And I want to thank you for coming on. It, it's an amazing world you're living in. And I'm sure you're going to do what you did with the knot here at Artsy pretty soon. Oh, thanks, man. It's going great so far. And come check us out. We're in the app store. We're online. And we've got incredible. And you or any of your listeners, if you think you want to buy art, but you don't know where to start, slide into my DMs. I will get you into the art world. It, it would be a personal joy of mine to help anybody figure out what I figured out over the last two years, which is how wonderful it is. Wow. To buy art and to support artists and be a part of the art market. It's you heard that right here. That's awesome. Yes. Thanks so much, Mike. Come find me <laughs> online. All right, buddy. Thanks again. And that's our episode. If you like what you heard, please subscribe to How Success Happens wherever you get your podcasts. We come out with a new episode every Wednesday morning, and you don't want to miss it. And if you like to share, please feel free to pass along the show to an entrepreneur friend who could use a boost, and I could always use the subscribers. And do you have ideas for guests? I always love to hear about great entrepreneurs. If you know anyone, shoot me an email at hsh at entrepreneur.com or on Twitter at Robert Tuckman. That's R-O-B-E-R-T-T-U-C-H-M-A-N. Or even send me a message on LinkedIn. How Success Happens is a production of Entrepreneur Media. Be sure to visit entrepreneur.com for insight on building your business. Or even better yet, subscribe to our magazine. No joke, I found my first job after reading about a company in Entrepreneur Magazine back in the 1990s. It's always been my absolute favorite magazine for entrepreneurs. Thanks for listening and spending some time with me today. Until next time, my name is Robert Tuckman, just a fellow entrepreneur and your host. See you soon.